0: All right, we come back to chapter 1, and this is the final verse of the first chapter of this glorious letter, and it's broken down in many ways. Uh, We've spoken about this over this past 13 weeks. Uh, Oftentimes it's said there are seven attributes or characteristics or statements about Christ given in the first half. Depends on how you count them. I think oftentimes we like to say, well, there's seven verses in the second half, so there should be seven statements in the first half, but... Uh, I find about nine. So, you know, it just depends on how you count them. But uh, regardless, there are these great things said about Christ. And we've gone into great detail looking at those things. And then in the second half, where it turns from saying that Christ is greater than the prophets to saying that He is greater than the angels, there are seven verses given which account for us how He is greater than the angels. And there is much said about how he is greater than the angels we spent several weeks if not longer i don't know how many weeks it is now uh, on just these verses but we've been looking at the idea that is established in these verses that angels are created servants of god christ is uncreated for he is the second person of the eternal trinity he is god and so there is uh, a great contrast given here and We've spoken about this, that the contrast is really going to be given for the purpose of what's coming up early in chapter 2. We're going to be looking at it, uh, but we're not there yet, although something will be said about it today. Still, all of this drives what we looked at last Sunday morning. The last quotation given by the author of Hebrews is in verse 13. And it's not just another quotation, it is, The culminating quotation. We spoke about how theologians have often called it that. Uh, Philip Hughes called it the culminating quotation. Because the author of Hebrews says, To which of the angels, name any angel to whom God could say, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now we know that's a quotation from Psalm 110 verse 1. David says, The Lord... Uh, Yahweh said to my Lord, my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is a statement that is applied to Christ. And that's testified throughout the New Testament. And it was recognized as messianic even in the day it was given. And so there's nothing there controversial, but it cannot be said of any angel. It can only be said of one person. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, the Son of God. Only Him, the only begotten Son of the Father, can this be said. He alone can sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this happened, that His enemies will be made His footstool. Now I said last Sunday that we wanted to look at that verse in detail and think about it, but we didn't want to lose sight of the fact that it is a contrasting verse. The author is saying, this is what said of the Son, that He is the glorious, enthroned King. That He is ruling and reigning and all things are being put under Him. No question. That is the testimony of Psalm 110. But what of angels? Well, verse 14 sums up the contrast. What does he say? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? Now, we could simply give a synopsis of this text and really have everything it's meaning to tell us by simply saying, they are servants, He is Lord. They are created, He is eternal. That's the contrast looked for. But there's something here that's important for us to think about. What is the ministry of angels? I don't know if I've ever preached a sermon on angels. I mean, angels figure into many sermons. But how often have they been the focus of the sermon? Not often, I don't believe, if ever. And so we want to think about what is this telling us about angels? Because it is telling us something profound at the end of a chain of revelations about angels that themselves are profound, even if we recognize the truth in them as being long established in the Scriptures. So what does this tell us about angels? I want us to look at two points as we think about it. First of all, that angels are ministering spirits. That's a statement clearly from the text, but what does it mean? What does it mean to say angels are ministering spirits? And second of all, we want to say or establish that they serve God's plan. They serve God's plan. Now this text is going to apply it even more focused than that, but we're going to start with that they serve God's plan and move into, over the course of that second point, what this author is specifically pointing to. So I want us to begin first with our our first point, that angels are ministering spirits. Because it's just a good policy, isn't it, to start where the text starts. The text starts with this question, are they not all ministering spirits? Now, it's a question, are they not all ministering spirits? But it's a rhetorical question. It's not intended that you might answer no. In fact, in the Greek, it's clear that it's, implied, the answer to this question is yes, it's obvious, it is yes. They are all ministering spirits. And he goes on beyond that to say they are set forth to minister. And We're going to come to that. I want us to walk through this verse as we think about them being ministering spirits. Because he uses this interesting word here that they are spirits. Now we instantly know what this means, right? They're not embodied as we are embodied. Are they presented in the Scripture sometimes as if they have a body? Do they appear to people visibly? Yes. God allows that to happen. It's within the power that they are given or assigned. But they are spirits, powerful spirits. And we speak here, we're speaking today focused on what we would typically call the good angels, right? We're not speaking of demons here. We're not speaking of those angels that fell from their proper abode. We're speaking of the angels in service who have faithfully served God. And so looking at this, we want to recognize that it does say something about them being spirits, but it also says that they are all ministering spirits. Now, that word in the Greek, pas, means everyone, without exception. Now, does the author here just say that the angels, kind of just meaning as a group, or does he mean he's trying to get the point across without exception, there aren't any Angels that are ranked so high that they are above this. I'm not sure in effect, it's the same thing being said, isn't it? All angels fit this category, fit this description. Archangels, cherubim, seraphim, whatever group or class of angels, whatever you're thinking of in terms of angels, they all are going to fit this description. They are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister, to serve. And so that is an important point for us to see. But it is important for us to recognize that they are sent out. Sent out by God who created them. Through Christ they were created. They are created beings. They are these spirits created who serve God. Again, one of the things that we want to say is that it even says in this very letter that some people may have entertained angels unaware. Chapter 13, verse 2, you may be familiar with that. There, it's implying that there are times that people have dealt with angels and didn't even know it. So again, there are times that they would appear, what would seem to be, in a bodily form, or at least have the appearance in that sense. These spiritual beings are throughout the pages of Scripture, and we see it over and over again. When it says that they are sent out, that word apostello, it, it's the word that we get apostle from, sent out ones. It's not arguing they're apostles in the way we mean that in the New Testament. It means they are messengers, representatives of God. They go out and do His bidding. They are sent out. It's the exact word, by the way, used for Paul in Acts 15 after the Jerusalem council when it says that Paul was amongst those sent out to deliver the judgment of the council to the churches. In the same way that the church assigned Paul, Paul carry this letter out to the churches, so God assigns the angels task to be done. He sends them out, sends these spiritual, powerful spiritual beings out for appointed service. But it is at His direction. These holy angels are not accomplishing their own will. They're accomplishing the will of God. They are in His service. They are under His command. He is sending them out. So they do not have their own agenda. They are accomplishing tasks given to them by Almighty God. Well, what is that task? The author of Hebrews puts it under one term here, ministry. This word is the root word diakonos, which we know we often use for deacon, right? It's the word that's transliterated into deacon. Again, just as they're not apostles in the New Testament sense, they're not deacons in the office New Testament sense. They are deacons in what that word actually means, which is servant. They are servants doing service on behalf of God. So again, they've been given a task of service according to the purpose of Almighty God. What do you put all that together to say? What is this verse telling us? Well, it's telling us something pretty significant. All angels, regardless of which angel you want to refer to, we know the names of a couple, whatever class of angels, whatever way you want to look at it, they all serve the same purpose. They are ministering spirits, serving spiritual beings who are sent forth by Almighty God to render service on behalf of God. Now this author gets even more specific than that, doesn't he? But even before that, none of this would surprise us that angels... Serve God. That is the text of Scripture. In fact, uh, over and over again we see that. In fact, the angels that are fallen are the ones that rebelled against their proper abode, rebelled against their proper station, their proper calling. And so again, uh, we would see that the angels, the holy angels, are those who are serving God. Again, nothing shocking about that. Angels are sent out, of course. They're sent out by God according to the purpose and plan of God, the will of God. They're sent out to minister. But in what ways are they ministering? We've said broadly they minister the interests of Almighty God. That's true. Nothing controversial in that. Psalm 103.20 says, Bless the Lord, you His angels, who excel in strength, who do His word, heeding the voice of His word. That's what it says. They do what God commands them to do. That is their proper office, their proper station. That is what they are to do. And yet, The author of Hebrews says more. He says that they are sent out by God to serve those who are to inherit salvation. So it's a given that they serve God. It's a given that they serve Christ who himself is God. But it goes even more specific. The author of Hebrews says, Do they not minister for those who inherit salvation? The people of God. Do they not serve the people of God? That might confuse us a little bit. Maybe we haven't thought about angels as serving the people of God or the interests of the church, if you want to think of it that way. We haven't thought about it maybe in that way, but that's what it says. They are serving God's will and God's plan by ministering to those who will inherit salvation. Again, the text plainly says that. Now, this statement is true, but it brings me to think about what I've thought about angels through the years. I can remember as a, a youngster coming home sometimes after school and turning on the television. And you may remember in a uh, number of years ago, what you'd find at four o'clock in the afternoon on television was Oprah Winfrey on one channel, maybe Phil Donahue on another channel. And it's amazing to me when I think back how many times I saw subjects on angels as I'd flip through the television. I was looking for like G.I. Joe or something, but uh, but that's sometimes where I would stop for a minute and be like, oh, they're talking about angels. But it's amazing how poor the theology was. These stories of angels that would uh, maybe be possible in the sense of the power being exhibited. If we talk about angels who did miraculous and powerful works, no question about that. But is it biblical the way it was presented? And I think the answer is no. Because over and again, it would be either non-believers who had these angelic expri- these angelic encounters. Of course, this says it's for those Who will inherit salvation? The people of God. They would often talk about the the wonderful moment the angel appeared to them. How peaceful the angel looked. How relaxed it made them. And I've asked you in times past, where in the Bible do you see that experience out of anyone who encounters an angel? When angels are encountered and they realize it's an angel at once, the angel almost invariably has to say, fear not. Do not be afraid, because it is a fearful thing to stand before a holy angel. A fearful thing. I think I heard one minister say most people's theology comes from side uh, Comics, but um, a lot of people get theirs from Oprah. And that's a sad revelation in and of itself. And it's not the place to turn if you want to know about angels. Turn to God's Word. Turn to God's Word and see what God's Word has to say. Now, there are things said about angels. Angels serve God. Angels do the the will and bidding of God. They served Christ. And you could say immediately they served Christ as long as they've been created. They worship in heaven. They bring glory to God. They worship around the throne of God. And therefore, they have always served Him in that way. But they even served Him in His incarnate mission. We've been speaking in Hebrews a lot about that incarnate mission. But they served him there. Matthew chapter 4, uh, when Christ was tempted, it says in verse 11, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. What does that mean? What does that detail? It doesn't tell us. They ministered to him in some way. In some way, after that trial. Luke twenty-two forty-three. 43, it says, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. This is Gethsemane. In that uh, terrible hour, if you will, where he's in prayer recognizing what's about to come forward, what he's about to endure. It says that an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. That's Luke 23, 43. Jesus recognized that the angels would serve him, would protect him. Matthew 26, 53, Or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and He will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? Now, we can read in the Old Testament of a single angel that slew 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Can you imagine what twelve legions of angels could accomplish? And Christ says, all I have to do is pray and ask for them, and my Father would give them to me. Now Christ says that knowing He would never do that. It's not the plan for which He came. He came to go to Calvary's cross. But He says, do not, wreck, do not miss the fact that all I would have to do is ask for these angels and they would come and they would wipe you all out. He, he knew that they would, but they also did uh, minister and protect Jesus. Matthew 2.13, Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Here's an angelic dream, an angel appearing in a dream to tell Joseph, Get to Egypt. Get him somewhere safe. And just a few verses later in 19 and 20, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the child and his mother, And go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. So there are many examples that we could give of how angels served the incarnate Word. It served Christ in this world. Now that isn't hard to believe. They serve God. We recognize that. We recognize their service to God. But their service is found from cover to cover in the Scriptures. Cover to cover. In the Old Testament, angels led the people of God on dangerous journeys. Exodus 23, 23, For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Get the idea of the angels going before them. The idea is they're following. This angel that protects them and guides them is before them on behalf of God. Exodus 32, 34 says something very similar. 33.2 33:2 of Exodus says this and I will send my angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanite and Amorites and Hittites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites. Why will they fear you? I'm with you. I am with you because I have assigned my angel to you. He goes before you. They melt away in your path because I am with you. I send my angels to lead you, to guard you, to fight on your behalf. Numbers twenty sixteen says this, When we cried out to the Lord, He heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now we are here in Kadesh. Again, the idea is they cried out to the Lord, the Lord delivered them. Angels there every step of the way. Angels are agents of rescue in the Scriptures. Genesis 19, Lot and his daughters are trapped. The men of the city have surrounded the home, desiring to do unspeakable evil. The angel leads them out, doesn't he? He leads them out. If you continue in 2 Kings 19 and 35, uh, it's, that's a reference to the text I mentioned just a moment ago where the angel comes and slays 185,000 Assyrians. Again, the angels are protecting the people of God, battling on their behalf, leading them, guarding them. Now, it's not just in the Old Testament. Acts chapter 5. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison door and brought them out. Remember, the, uh, the apostles had been locked away. Cannot preach this name any longer. And an angel lets them out. They're found again the next day preaching. And uh, I just love that because it sets them up to say, yeah, God's the one who released us. Acts chapter 12. You may remember, Herod begins to persecute the church. He has Peter arrested. Peter is locked in a cell. I believe there's two doors, it says, and he's chained on both sides. And an angel comes, opens the door, swings open the large gate at the outside of the prison, and the chains drop from Peter's arms. And the angel says, come on, let's go. Let's go. The church was meeting at that very moment. They were praying that Peter would be released, would be spared, that he wouldn't be killed. And yet as Peter arrives there at that prayer meeting... They can't believe it's him. Like, they don't open the door for him. Like It can't be him. Again, we ought to have a little more faith in our prayers than that. right? We have faith in God who we're praying to. But again, it's an example of an angel rescuing on behalf of God, God's people. So there are plenty of examples of God's people being physically delivered by God through his direction of angels and assigning them of missions. Now, key to the argument of Hebrews, and this is what I've been trying to argue for a long time, I've had to ask you to trust me up till now. We'll be getting very soon to the part where it's going to make this argument. Angels are mediators. Angels, at least, were mediators. We could say that for sure in the Old Testament. Acts chapter 7, verse 4, uh, 53. Who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So, in other words, the law is being pictured as being given to Moses... By angels we talked about that this double mediation idea of the old covenant God gives it to angels who gives it to Moses who gives it to the people if we were to continue Acts seven thirty-eight says this this is he who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers the one who received the living oracles to give to us again there was an angel there Moses received this from him Galatians 3:19 What purpose then does the law serve It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator Again keep all this in mind we're going to revisit it but keep all this in mind when you think about this chiastic argument of chapter 1 of Hebrews Christ is better than the prophets greater than the prophets a greater prophet and he's greater than the angels at what Mediating. Mediating. That's what ultimately is being gotten to. There's a warning in the very beginning of chapter 2 which we're coming to very shortly. Which says if the word mediated by angels came with warnings, how much more seriously should we take this word given to us by God's own Son? God's own Son. Now angels are clearly messengers. That doesn't really take much establishment. It's told you in their name. It means messenger. The Old Testament word for angels, melach, means messenger. It is kind of their most basic function. They are ones who deliver a word on behalf of God, deliver a message. Now, do prophets also do that? Yes. But prophets aren't angels, and angels aren't prophets. God assigns sometimes for angels to come and be the ones to deliver a message. And oftentimes, prophets get their message from angels. God sending an angel. But, again, think about this for just a moment. You can find this throughout the pages of Scripture. Daniel, Zechariah, Revelation. Too many examples to give an account where angels are said to bring a message on behalf of God. But if you want to think of the most basic example that we might think of, think of the early chapters of Luke, for instance. Think of the early chapters of Matthew, for example. How we have in the Christmas story the example of angels announcing the birth of John the Baptist, announcing the birth of Jesus, and we just spoke about some other ways in which angels brought messages saying, you know, get out of town, go into Egypt, and then come back. Again, we can find throughout the pages of Scripture uh, the fulfillment of this role of messengers Amongst the angels, it is not hard to find. Finally, and this is very similar to what we said earlier, angels protect the people of God. Now, earlier we talked about leading and going out before and releasing, but now we even want to think specifically about the way that angels protect the people of God. Psalm 34 speaks of encamping angels who encamp around the people who fear God. And when you think about that illustration, it's like uh, as, a, as a people, we're camped and encamped around us, our defensive army. That's how you think of it in military terms. In this term, it's just said an angel, an encamping angel. I think an angel is enough if he can slay 185,000 soldiers. You don't need necessarily an army of angels, but God could send an army if he wanted to. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar says this, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him that they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Again, even Nebuchadnezzar recognized God's intervention in that moment. Daniel, a few chapters later, says this, My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth. We know this story from the time we're children, don't we? Daniel's in the the lion's den. That's a fearful place to be. A place where not many made it out. And yet the next morning when they come to look, he's still there. And he says, My God sent an angel to shut the lion's mouth. You know, I I don't know how that works. If there's literally an angel standing there holding his mouth shut or if it's uh, some work of power that God has given him. But it does say that God intervenes in this way in the world. Have you thought about that? God intervenes in the world to protect His people through the ministry of angels. Now in what ways does He do that? I'm going to ask you. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But is this only an Old Testament ministry? No. Acts 27, Paul testifies, For there stood by me this entire night an angel of of God, whom I serve and belong saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sell with you. Remember that passage? The, The ship is getting rocky. It's going to sink. They don't know what to do. He intercedes not only on his own behalf, but also on behalf of everyone on board the ship. And God sends an angel to stand there and say to him, Not only are you protected, he must be protected. Why? He must stand before Caesar. But because you've asked it, Paul, because you've interceded and God desires to grant this to you, everyone on board this ship will be spared. Now, in what way is this angel simply a messenger and not also in some way actively protecting the people on board? I don't know. Maybe he's doing both. He's at least a messenger here. But it seems to me Paul's confidence is in the God who sent this angel that there would not be any harm come to anyone on board that ship. They would survive. So again, there are references like this. In fact, there are so many references even in the New Testament that some people derive a doctrine of guardian angels. Matthew 18.10, it says this, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. People say, oh, well, that says that these children have angels, right? They each have a guardian angel. I don't think that's how it should be interpreted. It's not our purpose to exposit that text today, but I don't believe that's how it's to be interpreted. But you can see why people think that, and you can see, especially when you go back to the text we looked at earlier, spoke about earlier, when Peter is released, and the little servant of the house who Peter comes to, and and she's at the door, and, and she asks who it is, and she recognizes Peter's voice, and she comes in and she says, it's Peter, it's Peter. They say it's not Peter. She said, yeah, it is. I I heard him. I know Peter's voice. That's Peter. Remember what somebody says? It's his angel. It's his angel. Now, what does that mean? In one sense, you could think if we believe that these early church leaders had terrible theology that they thought Peter had died and become an angel. No way. That's not what they think. We know that. Again, that's the Far Side comic version, right? What is it here? It may be they had some thought of a guardian angel or something else. I have no idea. It's not made clear to us in the text what they mean. Oftentimes there are frustrating things like this that we think, I wish one more line had been given to us so we would understand it a little bit better. But whatever the case, a lot of people build on this, this idea that Peter had a guardian angel and that each one of us have an angel. Could God do that? Of course God could do that. There's no text that gives us uh, that that can't be. But I don't think we can establish it on the text that were given there. But regardless, we do know this from the Word of God. Angels are given assignments. Some angels even have territories. You may think uh, when Daniel is praying and and, uh, Gabriel comes to him and he says, I was delayed for three weeks, 21 days, he says, I was delayed. Why? He was being hindered, I think is the word it uses. He was being hindered. By the prince of Persia. This principality and power figure. Some sort of evil, angelic, demonic figure that was contending against him. And he says, Michael was sent. The archangel Michael was sent. Freed me up to come to you. My friends, uh, we see they have assignments. They are given assignments. They uh, protect the people of God. They bring messages to the people of God. They do all sorts of things. What more can we say? Time wouldn't permit us to say all that the Bible says. In fact, when you do a survey on a topic like this, you're going to leave out far more verses than you can cover. Because the Bible never acts as if it should surprise us that there are angels. It gives it to us in a very matter-of-fact way over and over again that angels exist, that they are serving God, they are interacting according to His will in the world, and they are around the throne of God worshiping Him in heaven worshiping him you know we can think about as said earlier about classes of angels cherubim or cherub these are holy ones these are ones who uh, serve god You may remember that uh, the temple was if you will carved with images of cherubs i pray that we wouldn't think of what we think of as cherubs like uh, cupid or whatever on valentine's day nonsense like that these are frightful uh, angels to behold the angels that were said to be guarding the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were cast out. In uh, Isaiah chapter 6, we get another group of angels, the seraph or seraphim. That word seraph means burning ones. The idea is they have an appearance almost of of fire. Well, you may remember just a few verses earlier, this author applies a text that says that very thing. He makes his ministers, meaning angels, a flame of fire. That's verse 7. And some people see that as a reference to seraphim. But again, these seraphim are holy. They're the ones that are are pictured in Isaiah chapter 6, I said a moment ago, who it says that they have their, their wings, they cover their eyes and their feet, and with two they fly, and they cry out continually, holy, holy, holy. They worship God. They serve God. My friends, archangels serve God. All these angels serve God. And the Bible tells us they all exist. They all minister. They all serve God. It's found cover to cover. And so there's far more we could say but have no time to. But there are two things that we must close with. And the first one is that this text tells us is that there is a spiritual battle going on in the spiritual realm constantly. The Bible never lets us think this isn't the case. It tells us over and over. You might say, well, is that more Old Testament apocalyptic? No, it's said over and over in the New Testament. As Paul talks about who he's wrestling, he's more or less saying we're not wrestling human beings in a wrestling ring. We're wrestling against principalities and powers, right? forces. We're in this battle, in this, in this challenge against forces of evil. Now, do humans serve that bidding? Of course they do. And sometimes we feel that opposition. But again, the Bible makes it clear there is a spiritual realm behind all of that. We have an enemy. And the Bible never confuses. Yes, there are Herods in the world. But there is a Satan. right? There is this figure who is in opposition to the uh, church of Christ. And we battle against him. We battle in this, in this spiritual battle. And the Bible says, recognize that. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You may remember a great passage where Elisha and his servant are are surrounded and Elisha's servant has no confidence in their situation. And Elisha prays, he says, those who are with us are more than those against us. And he can't see it, of course. He prays, God, open his eyes. Then he saw this glorious angelic army surrounding their enemies. My friends, again, uh, we need to recognize that this battle is going on. The Bible makes it clear over and over and calls us to be engaged in this spiritual battle. And we're engaged in it in the ways that we're told to in prayer and in witnessing and the kingdom of Christ moving out into the world. That is how we're engaged in it. But there's something else this text tells us that we have to think about, and it's quick. Angels are engaged in this battle too. And they are sent out by God to minister to the people of God. They minister to us who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I ask you, how do they do that? I don't know. I can tell you what the Bible says that they do. It's what I've been trying to do this morning. We can see from the revelation of Scripture the ways in which they have ministered on behalf of the people of God in the past. Are they doing it in that same way? Well, I've heard amazing stories through the years, many of you have as well, of missionaries thrown into wells under lock and key, left for dead. And all of a sudden, somebody opens that up and draws them up out of the well. And when they step out and turn around, there's no one there. Is that an angel? I don't know. They didn't know either, but you can't say it isn't an angel. What about stories we've heard from missionaries whose homes have been surrounded by enemy forces looking to kill them. And later on, when somebody came in and rounded all those people up, they asked, why didn't they attack? They said, are you kidding me? With all those soldiers guarding the house, are these stories? Are these angels? Is it in keeping with what the Bible tells us happened in the past, that God has done? Yes. I wasn't there to witness it. But are these ways angels could minister? Certainly. Certainly they are. If we're going to be faithful to the Word, we have to recognize that God says these things happen from time to time. He appoints the angels to intervene in time and in space on behalf of His people in ways like this from time to time. If you tell me this has happened, am I going to be skeptical? Yes, to you, but I can't deny that it happened. God could do this if He chooses to. He uses angels historically in this way. In what way is He doing the church today? I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because he hasn't told me. But what he has told me is angels are involved ministering to the people of God. Where has he told me that? Hebrews 1.14. Hebrews 1.14. That angels are ministering spirits. They minister on behalf of God to those who will inherit salvation. What do we walk away from all that with? I pray a confidence in the love of God for his people that he sends angels to intervene on our behalf in ways we may never know or recognize. There may be dozens of ways we would have been harmed that we were never harmed because of this very intervention. And we never even knew it. Again, we'll come to 13.2 down the road. But he says you may have entertained angels and not even recognized it. And The other thing is it ought to give us confidence in this spiritual battle we're in. God has not left us alone in this battle. We are human beings. And we are weak in a very physical way, aren't we? We recognize it. And as we get older, we recognize our increasing weakness. But our God is mighty. He is almighty. The first week of the Apostles' Creed, we confessed what? I believe in God the Father almighty, maker of heaven and earth we want to say this, we should have confidence that our God has not left us to our own strength and devices. He has sent us everything we need, the gospel, the spirit, empowering our sanctified walk, building us for this battle, building us up, growing us, sanctifying us. But even then, he said there are moments, trials and tribulations that I'm going to send angels to minister on their behalf. In what ways, I don't know. But my friends, I know that he does it. And we ought to be thankful for it. Amen.